two years ago, I preached a sermon inspired by Brene Brown's book, The Gifts of Imperfection. Let go of who you think you're supposed to be and embrace who you are. How many of you have read one of her books or seen one of her TED Talks? So quite a few of you. I recommend them if you haven't. What I appreciate most about Brown's work is that she courageously and compassionately addresses topics that most of us have been taught to avoid at all costs. Almost two decades ago, she told her husband, I want to start a global conversation about vulnerability and shame. Vulnerability and shame. To say the least, those are not the easiest subjects to discuss, at least about yourself. You may have, you know, maybe easier to talk about them than other people. You know, what would you think if someone said during lunch, you know, I'd like you to be vulnerable and tell me a little bit about what you're most ashamed of? (laughs) Um, no. (laughs) Uh, For most of us, such an invitation would only feel safe under rare conditions, if at all. But Brown's work is about how and why we might want to own our imperfections in ways that are liberating and life-giving. Over the past few years, starting in 2010, she's written three um, New York Times best-selling books whose core themes can be distilled to the following. The first, The Gifts of Imperfection, was about being you. Not pretending to be someone else, not being someone less than you are, not someone you have been told you should be. Be you and be all of you. The second, Daring Greatly, is about being all in, not holding back, being all in with whatever you're doing. And the third is Rising Strong. We're going to fall, it happens, we're not perfect, but get up and try again. If you're being you and being all in in what you're doing, the chances are high that you will eventually, even perhaps quickly, fall in some ways, minor or major. But keep being you, keep being all in, get up and try again. And she writes that vulnerability... The willingness to show up and be seen uh, irrespective with no guarantee of the outcome, that that is the only path to more love, more belonging, and more joy. Now notice that she doesn't say that vulnerability is the only path to success, fame, and wealth. You can sometimes lie, cheat, and steal and get success, fame, and wealth. What she's saying is that vulnerability is the only path to more love, more belonging, and more joy. Because here's the twist. There are plenty of people with high levels of success, fame, and fortune who do not know how to be vulnerable and who also do not have much love, much belonging, or much joy in their life. So in the spirit of vulnerability, let me tell you a story of success, of failure and of getting back up to try again. I was a successful student in high school, college, and seminary. I worked hard. Uh, I also enjoyed academic work, so it came fairly natural to, to me. 
But there's a big difference between writing papers about religion and being a minister, it turns out. Uh, And I didn't know in advance how the transition would go from seminary student to congregational leader. So I told the search committee of the first congregation I served, because I'd thought about other things. I'd thought about, you know, do I want to be, uh, you know, head up a homeless shelter? Do I want to be a retreat leader? Do I want to go get a PhD in religion? So I told the search committee of the first congregation I served as associate pastor that I at least wanted to give it three years. You know, let's, let's see how this goes. And that was a congregation in Louisiana. As it turns out, we were a great fit. I ended up staying seven years four more years than I had originally planned. Now, I could have stayed longer, but I knew that staying would have been the safe option. And I was feeling called to take the risk of moving from being an associate pastor who still had the the safety net of a boss to being a lead pastor. So Megan and I moved to Southern Maryland, and I began serving as the solo pastor of a formerly mid-sized congregation that had slowly declined over the decades and had become quite small and was seeking to grow again. I told the search committee for that congregational restart that I planned to stay at least five years. In year one, I tried all the tricks that I knew with sermons, with classes and workshops, both offered for the congregation and out in the community. I tried connecting with the community in various ways uh, and many more other things. I tried everything that had led to a successful, thriving seven-year ministry in Louisiana. I read all the recommended books. I went to a top-notch national training on congregational growth. I can now see in retrospect that I also tried um, many of the same approaches and strategies that have also led so far to a successful four-year ministry here in Frederick, Maryland. But in Southern Maryland, after a year of my best efforts, the congregation had grown some, but we were hoping for much more and sort of to be able to extrapolate from that to say, you know, we really are headed over the next quite a few years to uh, find something that's financially sustainable long term. So after this year of frustratingly slow growth, I did feel that I had at least gained a more realistic understanding of that particular context than I had before moving to the area. So I attended another top-notch national training on congregational growth and met with the congregation in the wake of that to form a plan of action, and we resolved to redouble our efforts for year two. But growth continued at a snail's pace, and well into my second year, I found myself telling Megan, my wife, I feel like I at least need to look around and see if there are any other options, even as we continue to work hard here on the ground. Uh, A few days later, the latest issue of Christian Century, that's the sort of main journal of mainline Protestantism, came in the mail, and in the back was a classified ad from a Unitarian Universalist congregation in Frederick, Maryland, you know, casting quite a wide net in search of a minister, and you know the rest of the story. Yeah, right. Uh, So just as with the congregation in Louisiana, where I planned on staying three years and stayed seven, it turns out that we're a great fit as well, it seems. I told the UCF search committee that I planned on staying at least seven to ten years, and here at the beginning of year five, leaving is certainly the last thing on my mind. We just bought a house last year. So, uh, right, thank you. 
But in contrast to that, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do was to pick up the phone and call each member in turn of that small congregation and tell them that I was leaving. Not after five years, but after a little less than two. I was leaving actually right at the two-year mark. Though they had funds to continue paying my salary for a full five years and beyond, indeed they've now called another minister and I wish them all the best. She seems to be a pretty good fit. I haven't checked in. I don't want to meddle. Uh, and I remain proud of the good ministry that I was able to offer them in, in many ways. But I needed to be honest, honest with myself and honest with them, that the evidence was increasingly clear that I was not the catalyst for growth in that setting that both they and I hoped I would be. Remember Brene Brown's insight that vulnerability, the willingness to show up and be seen with no guarantee of uh, outcome, is the only path to more love, more belonging, and more joy. Uh, Because I actually think if I'd stayed there, it probably would have been, I could already feel some depression that I think it would, staying there would not have been a path to love, belonging, and joy. It would have been denial. It would have been, you know, one definition of insanity is continuing to do the same thing and expecting a different result. Another easy choice might have been, again, as I said, for me and Megan to stay in Louisiana, where I would have been the heir apparent to the senior minister when he retired. But we wanted to be geographically closer to family and in a geographical location that would have more options, more job options for Megan. So we took a chance with no guarantee of outcome, and it did not work out. But in the end, it was a path to more love, belonging, and joy. Because I learned a lot about myself in those two years, not only about what I'm good at doing, but also being honest about what I'm not good at doing. Uh, I also learned a lot about being a minister. As an associate pastor, for those seven years, I was used to preaching about once every two months. But for those two years as a solo minister, I preached almost every Sunday. I suspect there are ways that I couldn't have seen in advance that my experience during those two years as a solo minister made me more attractive to UUCF search committee than if I'd just spent an eighth and a ninth year you know, on that plateau that I had reached as an associate pastor in Louisiana. Moreover, it was precisely my failure that helped open me up to taking the risk from being a minister in liberal Christian congregations to seeking fellowship with the Unitarian Universalist Association. Sometimes when you hit some sort of bottom, it opens you up and you say, well, since I'm down here, do I want to go back up this way or do I want to try to go back up a different way? So in the midst of that transition, Brene Brown's work is one of the many resources that helped me articulate the difference between saying I failed and I am a failure. Maybe you felt some of that inside yourself before. Because I did fail to help that congregation grow to a sustainable size. But that failure is so different from saying that I am a failure. One is something I did. One is something that you are, that I am. Any one of us may fail repeatedly, but even at the bottom, you're not a failure. That is to deny our UU first principle of the inherent worth and dignity of every person, period, no buts, no qualifications. It's true of you at every point in your life. You have inherent worth and dignity. Don't let anyone deny it. They're not your friend. 
Brown writes about the ways that guilt and empathy can actually be helpful emotions in many circumstances, causing us to feel the ways that our actions have impacted others. If you're feeling guilty, it might be because you did something, not because you are something, but because you did something, you transgressed in some way, and you might want to interrogate that and pay attention to it and look for some way to restore right relationship. But shame, shame is different than guilt and empathy. Shame is much more about who you are. And shame is much more likely to be the cause of destructive behavior than any sort of cure. Because shame tries to make us question our inherent worth and dignity. If you're feeling shame about something, Brown recommends two steps. One, try talking to yourself in the same way when you're at your best, you talk to others. Yes, you made a mistake, You're human. You don't have to do it like everyone else. Fixing it and making amends might help. Self-loathing will not help. So talk to yourself in the way that you might talk to someone else when you're at your best. And two, reach out to someone you trust, a person who has earned the right to hear your story and who has the capacity to respond with empathy. You might even find that in sharing your story of shame with someone you trust, that you might even loosen some things within them that may give them permission. It may not be with you, but to share either with you or with someone else soon or down the line something that they've been hiding, something that they are ashamed of or have been made to feel ashamed of. Along those lines, one of the events that Brown notes in her book is called FailCon. Does that sound like something you might want to go to, a convention about failure? (laughs) FailCon is a conference for entrepreneurial founders of startup companies so that they can learn from and prepare for failure so they can iterate and grow fast. What attendees of these conferences report is that they continue to associate failure with sadness, with fear, with making a fool of yourself, with desperation, with panic, even with shame and heartbreak. But when asked about the people who are willing to be vulnerable and share their stories at FailCon, the words that come to mind that they report are helping, generous, open, knowledgeable. They actually know some things about failure and how to get back up. And brave and courageous. And there's a flip side to that dynamic. When we refuse to be vulnerable and try to hide our failures from others, we create the conditions in which shame thrives. And often our repressed feelings come out in twisted pathological ways. In Brown's words, there are too many people today who instead of feeling hurt, act out their hurt on others. Instead of acknowledging their pain, they inflict pain on others. Rather than risk feeling disappointed, they choose to live disappointed. She's learned to see emotional stoicism, blustery posturing, and swagger as the signs of someone who is moving in the opposite direction from that vulnerable path that leads to love, belonging, and joy. Regarding that vulnerable way, one of Brown's favorite quotes is from Theodore Roosevelt's 1910 speech, The Man in the Arena. Just one excerpt. It is not the critic who counts. 
It is not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or the, how the doer of the deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man or the woman who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who at the best in the end knows triumph and high achievement, and who at worst, if there is failure, at least fails while daring greatly. What might that look like for you at this time in your life? What arena, what arenas are calling for you to step into? Where might you, where might we dare greatly? Now, our UU principles aim high. They call us to recognize and respect the inherent worth and dignity, not of those nice people, but of every dadgum person. I'm going to say more about that in a sermon this fall, about how hard that is every person. They call us to work, not for like a little more justice, a little more love, but for the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. Now, it's easy to reach all your goals. Just set the bar really low and step right over them, right? Uh, But each of you and the larger UU and progressive movement generally challenge me to be better, to set the bar far higher than I ever would by myself. And you remind me that I don't have to do this alone. You don't have to go through this life alone. We can do it together. For now, I'll leave you with these words adapted from the conclusion to Brene Brown's book, Rising Strong. When we show up with our whole selves, when we are all in, when we dare greatly, there is no greater threats to the critics and the cynics and the fear mongers than those of us who are willing to risk falling because we have learned how to rise up again. With our wounds and our bruised hearts, we choose owning our struggle. We choose owning our struggle over hiding and hustling and pretending. Because when we deny our stories, what we deny ends up defining us. When we run from our struggle, we're never free because we're always still running. So we own our truth and we look it in the eye and we dare to write a different ending. We craft Love from heartbreak, compassion from shame, and courage from failure. Our power is in keep showing up, sharing our truth. That's our way home. We're not perfect, but we're wiser on the the other side of every fail and every fall. And we're braver every time we dare to get up and try again. We are the brave and the brokenhearted, and we're rising strong. We're early this morning, so I'm going to tell you some more. (laughs) 
So uh, let me tell you one thing uh, if you're looking to move into this work of vulnerability more, and then I'll give you one tool for if you take a step too far and you're like, whoa, safety, mercy, what you might, uh, what you might do. So I think the biggest, uh, one of the best tools that I've found for doing this work of how do I begin to move into this um, vulnerable path of moving toward more love, more belonging, and joy, because, you know, it turns out it's, it's hard to have more love in your life and more belonging and joy if you're all armored up. Right, you know, if you're just all armored, you're protected, but you're protected from the bad stuff, but you're also protected from the good stuff. You know that I, you can't really hug easily if you're wearing this big suit of armor. Right, people can't really connect with you, and you can't connect with them. So if you're looking to let go of some of that armor, you know, do it in a safe place. That's some of what Brown talks about with people that are are worthy of it. But the best tool that I've found for this is you know naming the emotional elephant either in the room or better, even better inside yourself, you know, own that just for yourself. This is what I feel. Um, you know, you use that I language. So just speak for yourself. Don't, don't use the, the false we that we say something, you know, presuming a false we presume, you know, when people speak at a room or, you know, couples do this too. You know, they say things like we should do this. What they really mean is you should do this. Right. So, I mean, <laughs> use your pronouns correctly, right? Yes. Yeah, so say, this is what I would like you to do this, you know, or I think I might need to do this, or maybe perhaps I think we should do this together, right? But don't, don't presume this false we or presume even false experience, right? Just use I language. It'll get you a long way toward having better relationships. Um, but with that I language, naming this emotional elephant inside yourself, that just teaching people, because we don't learn this stuff all the time. You know, we spend a lot more time testing IQ than EQ, right? Intelligence quotient than emotional quotient. And there's plenty of smart people who are emotionally oblivious. And so the, the simplest way I've found to, to teach this is to ask people, you know, what are you feeling? And then you know, share what you're feeling and just use, are you mad, sad, glad, or bad, right? Bad is guilt or shame. So are you feeling mad, sad, glad, or bad? And bad again is guilt or shame, and just just share that. So and a lot, and then and then you start to unpack it, right? So you know, it's like you're feeling like there's conflict, and it's kind of like, wait, what am I feeling, right? Am I angry? Am I sad? Am I afraid? You know, what's going on here? And then begin to unpack that. And what what I've found consistently in all different manner of relationships is the the, the bottom starts to drop out of the conflict, and like you start you enter a deeper place where real transformation and where that love and connection and joy can, can potentially happen. So naming that emotional elephant, those five, mad, sad, glad, or bad. Uh, and then the, the tool I'd give you, and we can try this right now, it's Brene Brown calls it tactical breathing. I've also seen it called um, box breathing or square breathing. So you kind of envision a, a four by four box that's a square that's equal, and you use that for the four parts of your breathing. So you, you count as you inhale, you start with the inhale, and you count to four on the inhale, and then you hold it for those same four, hold your breath for those same four counts, and then you uh, breathe out for four counts, and then you let, and having let, hold that exhale for four counts, and then do that four times. And you'll often find that you're in a different place. So let's, let's try that. We'll just do it once or twice, but try breathing in. And we're out. and then hold it there.
So we'll stop there, but you'll see it, because I think it's better for you to do your own rhythm. But you'll find also, as you do, as you go through it even four times, you'll start to slow down, and you'll start to find a pace, and you'll often find this is even better than counting to ten, right, which is also good. Or just leaving the room, right? Sometimes that's also something to pay attention to, right? That, that's a pattern some of us have learned to use. We, we, that one way some of us armor up is we leave, we flee, right? So flight or flight, you know, pay attention to that too.